Radio Mano Papachango. Hi there, my name is Pradeepa and I'm from Melbourne, Australia and we are currently in stage four lockdown. I'm still working as a cook in a childcare centre where I have listened to your voice, Chris, for hours and hours. Yahoo! Seriously, if it wasn't for you, Joe Rogan and Duncan Trussell, my day would be mind-destroyingly boring. So thank you. And Sex at Dawn inspired my comedy career. So thank you again. So stay safe, uh, stay sane, and big love from Australia, mate. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Tangentially Speaking. I'm your host, Christopher Ryan, and this episode could not be more special. As you know, if you listen to this podcast with any sort of regularity, I often struggle with the question of how personal to go um, uh, with this. Some people are extremely intimate and personal with their podcast. Um, others keep a, a very public kind of attitude toward it and keep a distance. I'm somewhere in the middle. Uh, I'm always sort of vacillating on that question. I've had people on the podcast as guests who were very, very close to me. And um, I always feel a sense of protectiveness toward them, especially if they're people who aren't accustomed to dealing um with the public in any sense, you know, uh, dealing with the fact that if 10,000 or 100,000 people listen to you, not everyone's going to like you and not everyone's going to understand you. There's going to be misunderstandings and hostilities and confusion and weirdness. And, and that's just something I've learned to accept and um, not be bothered by. In the last 10 years since Sex of Dawn came out and I started getting interviewed and just sort of seeing myself reflected in that public realm. Um, but for other people who don't do that regularly and haven't had a chance to get used to it or um, aren't accustomed to sort of imagining an audience while they're speaking, there's a, a vulnerability and a an innocence that I feel very um, protective of, as I said. And it's not only uh, guests I have on who are uh, very close to me, it's any guest who's not accustomed to speaking publicly. So I'm always kind of feeling that, unless I'm interviewing a famous author or somebody like that. But most of the guests on this podcast are just people I meet through the course of my life who um, I think you'd like to meet too. So... Um, this is not an unfamiliar feeling for me, but this week and next week, 
Uh, I should say this episode and next episode, because I'm not sure they'll be a week apart. Hopefully I'll, I'll get them both up in the next few days, uh, are with my mother. And the next one will be with my sister. And uh, so I feel that sense of protectiveness, especially acutely. They're both amazing people. Um, just phenomenal. Uh, and for me, being able to do it this way was really valuable for me because I'm sure you can relate. You you have someone in your life, your entire life, and in my mother's case, and all but the first four years of my life in my sister's case, and you relate to them in terms of that um, relationship, not in terms of who they actually are. I mean, we all talk about uh, how, you know, our parents have a hard time seeing us as adults, right? Because they see that child in you always. And it works the other way too. You know, it's hard to look at your mother and just see a woman, just see a woman with this life or to look at your sister and see a woman who's lived a certain life and is has developed values and and incredible strength and incredible focus um, that may seem uh, kind of unfamiliar in a way when you're accustomed to thinking of them as this kid, someone who's four years younger than you in this case, or as your mom, right? Someone whose uh, primary presence in life is in relation to you, at least in your life. And you don't understand she's got all these relations to so many other people and different ways of being, right? She's not always Chris's mom. She's Julie Ryan, a totally um, 360 degrees of person and not just the part that you see from your angle. Um, yeah. So anyway, I don't know if I sound awkward and weird, but I, uh, I feel a little awkward and weird because I'm introducing you now, not to some stranger that I met, uh, a few days ago that I think is interesting. And I want to share with you, I'm sharing with you two of my very, very favorite, most precious people in the world. And uh, so I hope you will enjoy these conversations. Uh, they're obviously uh, extremely interesting people uh, to me as people, um, not just as Chris's mom and Chris's sister. So I guess with that, I will, uh, I will say goodbye. I'm recording this in Stanley, Idaho, by the way. I'm crouching behind a garage somewhere uh, near the library. Uh, it's a cool little town. I've uh, been camping in the woods for the last four or five days. Just came into town to get some work done, upload some podcasts, and uh, heading back to the woods soon. It's... Um, kind of smoky here smoke coming in from all the way from california which is bizarre the world is on fire people yeah let us stop talking falsely now the hour's getting late as bob and jimmy tell us all right i'm gonna play you out with uh, all along the watchtower why the fuck not thanks for listening to the podcast thanks for 
your support, however you offer it, whether it's just good vibes or send in a few bucks a month through the website or through Patreon or uh, however you do that or buying stuff from my mom, by the way, uh, proceeds from those koozies and t-shirts and all that go primarily to my mom and uh, iTunes reviews and telling your friends and whatever, whatever you do, however you do it. I hope things are going well for you out there. I hope you are uh, using this strange pause in the world uh, as an opportunity to reflect on what's coming next for you and how you can be more deliberate and use this opportunity to, uh, to refine your path and to do something maybe uh, more meaningful than what you were doing before this hit. That's the greatest value we can draw from this, I think. All right, much love to you all, and uh, I will catch you soon.
Welcome to another uh, very, very special episode of Tangentially Speaking with a woman whose voice you have no doubt heard before at the end of almost every episode in the last couple of years. You have talked about uh, the various things that are for sale out in the cottage, as you call it. I call it the garage. You call it the cottage. This is my mom, Julie Ryan. Say hi, mom. Hi. Hi. <laughs> We're not in the same room. She's in Los Angeles. I'm in Colorado. We're doing this online, uh, which is strange. I mean, you know, you're the person I've probably spent the most time in the same room with and maybe in my whole life. And here we are thousands of miles away finally doing this. Are you comfortable having this kind of conversation online? Do I get a final edit? <laughs> yeah, if you want to learn how to edit, you can do it. So, um, Mom, thank you for doing this. This is uh, how many episodes of the podcast have you heard? Do you think? Oh, probably a dozen or more. Right, like uh, with like with Mike Lang, with people that you you know, right? Yeah, I. I listened to a lot of the early ones where you just told stories about Alaska and uh, Mexico trips. Right. The, those are called tomas, where I'm just talking about traveling and stuff like that. So you listen to those. Yeah, we listened to a lot of them with your dad when he was right. in the in the hospital. Right. He liked to... Listen to those. Beth was telling me the other day she'd put the headphones on him and he'd just sort of laugh and then cry and then laugh and then cry. And <laughs> I can't well, he imagine. said he felt snug and secure with the headphones on, these exact same headphones, because hmm. there's a little address label I put up here to indicate they were his headphones so they wouldn't get stolen. Yeah. Um, so I, I wanted to just sort of, I mean, we don't have to talk about anything in particular, but, um, I wanted to sort of try to get, uh, you know, do you ever, you're 80 years old now, right? Is that was your last birthday? The big yeah, eight. Thanks, thanks for letting everybody know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you've never really cared about that kind of thing. I remember you used to joke about it. And say, like, you, you were having your 10th, 30th birthday uh, for a while there. But have you ever really cared about that, if people know your age? No. You know, my brothers and sisters all know because they're all younger. And um, there was a time when I was older and they resented that. And now I'm older and they love it. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how that shifts. You're... Your life, so you were born in uh, 39 then, is that? 1939. Right. So, and you were, your father was a chemistry professor, and your mom also was a teacher. Yes. I remember going to her class at one point when I was seven or eight, probably. Is that right? Well, you were in first grade, and she taught second grade and Frank and I were going to New York for something and uh, 
you and Beth stayed with my parents in New Jersey. So you went to school with her, but she told you that in school, she didn't want you to call her mum-mum, that you should call call her Mrs. Carr. So you very dutifully called her Mrs. Carr during the school day. And I guess Friday night, you, you got sick during the night. And she woke up to hear your little voice calling from the other bedroom, Mrs. Carr, Mrs. Carr. <laughs> I need you. I'm sick. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, it was so cute when she told us that story when we came back. and Yeah. You weren't deathly ill or anything. You just I think you had had a very busy week and. Just a little overwhelmed. Yeah, being in second grade when you were really only in first. Right. Um, uh, You know, I did this podcast with Beth the other day, and it was really interesting sort of stepping back and and seeing her as a, you know, 54-year-old woman rather than my little sister. Um, You know, and it's, I know in families, we get used to seeing each other um, almost more as the role we play in the family than as an actual human being, you know, separate from that context. And we talked about how, you know, sort of knowing her as I as I have and seeing how she responded to different things in her life, like the fact that every time we moved, she seemed to like gravitate toward kids who needed her help, you know, or who she could be of some assistance to, uh, you can sort of see how her life has, I don't want to say it's preordained, but when you look back, you can see how she became who she is now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, from a parent's point of view, it must be really like, you must be thinking about that kind of thing a lot, or you just notice it like, Oh, I understand why, you know, she's into that because when she was four, she was doing this, you know, there are all these connections. Do you ever, I mean, did you and dad ever talk about like how, oh yeah, so of course Chris is doing a podcast or Chris wrote these books or was that the kind of thing that you saw coming in me or were you guys surprised when those things happened? Uh, No, I'm not surprised. I'm continually amazed at the people you have connected with all over the world uh, from the uh, orders for t-shirts and books and and uh, comments that are on the order page uh, sometimes thanking me for raising you to be such a, a wonderful caring person um, <laughs> you didn't see that coming, I'm sure. I didn't see that coming. <laughs> not, not when you were a teenager and uh, your Aunt Dot and I called you Attila the Hun. Why Why did you call me that? Because you were so grouchy and mean and, and mouthy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you know what I was grouchy and mean about? Like, What was I angry about? Well, first of all, you were a teenager. Hmm. And then secondly, we moved a lot during your critical teenage years. 
Although I must say the moves for you were, were a much better life than, than the uh, Beaver Falls life, which was a great place to raise children. But um, the main industry there was a steel mill. Your father worked there, but he was an executive. But most of the boys in the school went into the mill after they graduated, and the girls went to college and became teachers. And, you know, there was an occasional male doctor or lawyer in town, but most of the boys went into the mill and made good money. So you really sort of dummied up a little because you didn't want to, you wanted to be friends with the boys mm. and uh, and the girls. But um, when we got to Connecticut, you found a whole new group of, of friends. I mean, Chip and Mike and, you know, the rest of that crowd could not have been more intelligent or... Uh, um, yeah, I remember one time you cut typing class to go to a creative writing class and your father had to come and explain to the principal that your brain was much better suited to the creative writing class than the typing class. Yeah, I remember that was an interesting situation. Um, so I moved, We our family moved to Connecticut from Western Pennsylvania uh, the summer between my ninth and 10th year in school. Um, and yeah, I remember going to that class. I've somehow was in this typing class and it was great. I mean, typing has really been helpful in my life, obviously, you know, being able to touch type. Um, but within uh, two weeks, I, I had it and it was like a 10 week term or something. And it's like, I can't sit here for another eight weeks just doing the same thing. I already know how to do it. So at that time, the normal teacher of that um, writing class you're talking about, or English class or whatever it was, uh, she was pregnant and she left and a substitute came in to take over. So I just transitioned and started showing up in that class. And she didn't know that I wasn't supposed to be there. And everything was fine. I answered questions in class and all, you know, the students all thought it was funny. Like, oh, he's not supposed to be here and she doesn't know. And it wasn't a big deal because I wasn't disruptive or anything. Um, but then the, the mistake was there was an exam and my answers on the exam reflected the fact that I didn't give a shit about anything because I didn't, I wasn't actually officially in the class and she didn't think that was funny and it turned into a big deal. And, you know, they called dad had to come in. And I remember sitting there in the office with the principal who was really upset and just laid this whole thing out like your son is disrespectful. He showed up in this class and was humiliating the teacher by, you know, she was not in on it. She didn't know what was happening and blah, blah, blah. And dad just listened very carefully. And he was dressed in his business suit. He was, you know, on his way to work, I guess. And, you know, he took the morning off or something. And he said to the the principal, well, can I see this exam, please? And, you know, what he wrote. And the teacher gave him or the principal gave him the, the paper and dad was reading it. And he started chuckling 
And he looked at me, he said, number three is really funny. And at that moment, I could see like, he's on my side. I knew he was on my side. And the principal was just like terrified, like, oh my God, wait a minute. This isn't working the way it's supposed to work. That was, that was, you know, I always felt you and dad were in my corner though, which was wonderful, but must have made me a handful for some teachers and administrators because they knew I, they had no leverage over me. No, we were, we were in your corner. We were in Beth's corner. Um, yeah, no matter what you did, we would, we would back you, uh, We'd have a little corrective interview when we got home, but in front of the other authorities. And and principals didn't scare either one of us. Uh, your dad was a teacher at Penn State. I taught high school for years. Uh, in Pennsylvania, you were at my high school. You used to say, my mom teaches at my high school, and I'd have to remind you that it was my high school long before you got there. But the teachers there loved you. And I had, I don't know whether you remember Mark Garrett. Yeah, I do. That was our, ninth grade. Yeah, our classrooms were right across the a little hallway from each other. And when the bell rang at the end of class, um, Mark and I would open our doors to let the kids out. And he would always say to me, I just love this class that your son is in. And I think, oh, that is so much better than a teacher saying, oh, God, I had your son again in this class. Well, I, I'm sure some pe some teachers felt that way. I mean, for me, it was if the teacher was good and, you know, acted like a human being, then I was super into it. If they were authoritarian and you know, just shut up and do what I tell you, then I wasn't. And uh, so, yeah, definitely had some conflicts with those types over the years. Um, do you remember the, uh, I think it was a student teacher who had to do a project on following one student through his life. I don't remember that teacher's name, but he asked me if he could do you as his project. And, you know, he came to the house and interviewed us all and wrote up a whole. Yeah, he, he went and watched me playing with the other kids in the neighborhood. And he he went to every class I was in and sat in the back of the room observing my interactions with other people. Yeah. I, I, I mean, you probably have a clearer memory of this than I do. It was maybe, I think I was in sixth grade, maybe. It was middle school. And I think, I think it was he was middle school, yeah. Yeah, I think he was a graduate student who wrote this. And then I remember, I remember you and dad and uh, this guy and I all talking and you guys saying, well, it's up to Chris. What do you think, Chris? And I, I remember saying, okay, whatever. It's fine with me. And then I remember you you gave me his report when he submitted it to you. He gave you a copy of it. I'm sure I still have it here. Really? <laughs> yeah. And uh, that was interesting because I I think that, yeah, I don't know, there were a lot of those experiences, like you were talking about how different the school in Pennsylvania was from Connecticut. 
I felt like in Connecticut, like I was one of the smartest kids in the school. And then we got, I mean, in Pennsylvania and then in Connecticut, I was just blown out of the water. Like I was barely in the top, you know, 10% or something uh, as far as just grades and not even grades, but just like aptitude. Um, that was a really interesting, in some ways, humiliating experience, but I think uh, ultimately very valuable. Yeah, well, you certainly fell in with the right crowd. Yeah, yeah, and definitely. I think a lot of that had to do with Chip living across the street and his family being so helpful and welcoming to us. Yeah. Chip was... Uh, Chip. I guess he's retired now, but he ended up being an orthopedic surgeon, went to Duke Medical School. He was one of those kids who was in the, you know, most advanced of everything that was offered by the school. And that was a really good school in Fairfield, Connecticut. And he would sit in the back of the class and read a book or, you know, doodle or whatever, barely paying attention. And then he just would ace everything effortlessly. He was just so smart, that kid. It was uh, amazing. And he was a bit of a lunatic, too. I remember he had a huge poster of Farrah Fawcett in his room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was a big fan of Farrah Fawcett. Anyway, enough about me. Uh, <laughs> let, let's talk about your impressions of me. No, I'm kidding. Uh so you you were raised. I didn't get to know your parents very well. I guess I was maybe eight or nine when they died. They died really close, like a few months from each other, right? Yeah, eight months apart. Yeah. And they were young. They Your mother was in her 60s? My mother was 64, but my father was 78. So he was older than my mother from the get-go. And right. And your how old was your mom? You're the oldest of five siblings. And how old was your mom when you were born? 34. And your dad must have was then 48 when you were born. Yeah. The first of five kids. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. That's incredible. Um, so you they were Catholic. And they took it seriously. They weren't just going through the motions. Is that right? Oh, no. Very seriously. Very, very. But, but my impression is, and Dad's parents were also Catholic. Yes. Um, and you guys met at a Catholic college. You were still in high school, though, right? Dad was I, just starting college? Yeah, I met your dad the first week he was at college. They were allowed out that weekend and they went into town uh, where there was a dance after the local football games. So the, the college freshmen found out that there was something going on there and I don't know how many came, but I met your dad that night and... Was that Harry's Rat Race? Harry's Rat Race, which was... <laughs> During the week, it was a skating rink, and it was on the second floor of a big office building. And I cannot imagine having offices or storefronts below it when roller skating was going on 
on the second floor. <laughs> <laughs> a little noisy. Yeah. But the last time we were in Latrobe, the building is still there. I don't know whether it's still a skating rink or <laughs> a right. dance a dance place. And Dad always said when he tells that told that story that he knew right away like you were you were the one for him. And he wrote a letter to his parents like that week or something saying he'd met the girl he was going to marry. Yes. How did you feel about that? It's a well, lot I of pressure on you. I didn't know that until years, years later. But um, uh. his family had a tradition. Uh, his dad's birthday was on the 21st of October, and Frank's was the 24th. So they had a tradition that they always celebrated the two birthdays together. And then so... They came out to Western Pennsylvania to celebrate the birthday weekend, and I met them. We had only been, I mean, not even dating, really. I mean, they're, um, you know, his school was 11 miles from my house, and he didn't have a car, and I didn't have a car. I lived at home, and... um well, then the parents, his parents came, so I met them, and I'm sure they were checking me out. And here I was, this shy, shy 16-year-old. <laughs> I guess I had just turned 17 when they came, because my birthday's in early October. And uh, But until until they died... We celebrated the birthday weekend every year. They came to visit no matter where we were. Um, when you were a baby, they were coming to State College, and I left a little shopping list for Frank on the counter to get some things before his parents arrived, and they got there early, and his father took the shopping list and went out and filled it, and filled it every time they came to visit. And I finally had to say, uh, you know, Chris doesn't eat the little pureed baby food anymore. So. <laughs> He's 16. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah that's, so, uh, that's kind of sweet, though. That's, uh, that's a years, nice gesture. Years later, when we had Beth, I said to him, you know, you can put the baby food back on the list. <laughs> I'll tell you when to take it off. But, uh, yeah, it, they were difficult parents. They were different, very different from my parents. But they both had a good heart. Good heart. Well, they, yeah, they were much more working class and... uh well, I, I mean, I have to say, I never liked either one of them. I, I hated visiting them. And, oh, I know. Uh, it was awful. It was one of the worst uh, things about my childhood, going to visit them. But, and it, I mean, it's not fair to Dad because that, you know, that was his parents, but they weren't particularly nice to him either and his brother growing up. Was that weird for you coming from this family where... um 
you know, as far as I know, your parents were not abusive in any way to any of the kids. I never heard my parents raise their voice to any of us or to each other. And Frank's parents' natural tone of voice was argumentative. Right. Everything was wrong or... Yeah, they hated each other or seemed to. Well, they were very, <clears throat> very wrong for each other. Yeah, it was yeah. It was not. And I'm sure they thought they stayed together for the children, um, Frank and his brother Tom. But it made Frank and Tom closer. I mean, they were, they were good friends. Um, yeah. And Tom and I were good friends, uh, after a while. Um, well, didn't Tom come and live with you guys when you were first married or when I was first born? And you had no money. You were living in a trailer park, right? Yes. <laughs> Believe humble, me. Humble beginnings. I was born a poor white child. It was much better than grad housing, which were... were Paper thin, I don't know how the building stood up, and I don't know how you survived in the winter. Hmm. They they had a number of Quonset huts from the Second World War that were turned into grad housing, and they were the desirable ones. The new ones, they were sort of like studio apartments, and uh, some of them had one bedroom and some had two. But in order to get a two-bedroom, you had to already have had the baby. You couldn't just be expecting a baby. Right. So um, we looked at them. You could hear every voice between the units. And uh, we had no furniture. So somebody suggested looking at a, a mobile home. And we did, and they were all furnished and, uh, you know, had a refrigerator and stove and uh, bathroom, two bedrooms. So with the help of my parents, we bought one of them. And it was much better living than, uh, than the grad housing. And we had a little yard and, yeah. but Tom did come. And he was with us when you were born, but he was uh, he was a teenager. He was missing Pat, who he had just met in his final year of high school, and um, we had a lot of moping around. But uh, <laughs> you were used to that with four younger siblings, I guess. <laughs> Well, I was the guess the one who moped around, but oh, you were moping. <laughs> I was the moping. Sorry, I thought he was moping because I had four. No, I, I was moping at home, but Tom was moping in the trailer. Oh, okay, I got gotcha. you. But he and he and Frank were good friends, and it was it was a, an interesting time, and it was just the beginning of a long line of people living with us over the years. Yeah, Beth and I mentioned that, how uh, both of us had uh, relationships where our partner came 
to stay with us. And then we broke up and the partner stayed and we went back to college. (laughs) (laughs) You guys have adopted a lot of people over the years. Yes. (laughs) That was that was awkward. At least mine, my situation was awkward, I guess. So, you know, with Joe, you guys were happy to have him around. He sort of became part of the family for a while. Well, yeah, he was very helpful. and uh, But we had Doug, too. Doug yeah. and Anna together. And At they, the same time, yeah. They used to argue yeah. about politics, and I would say to them, go out to the ocean and just scream into the ocean we don't scream in our house. No screaming. Uh, so then you, you left and left her there, and I don't know when Doug left to go back home, but he eventually left. Yeah, yeah. Sorry for that. Uh, <laughs> that, was, that whole situation was a little out of my control, I'm afraid. Um. So. But, I, I mean, that brings up one of the things that I, I thought would be interesting to talk about, which is how different the world that you grew up in was from the world in which you were raising kids, right? Because you, you know, you and dad both grew up in the 40s and the 50s, and then, you know, I was born in 62, Beth's born in, what, 66? Five. 65. Yeah. And then uh, and, and those are pivotal years. The whole country's changing. The, you know, the Vietnam War is raging, the civil rights, the hippies, the Beatles that, you know, like all these things are happening. Um, and in some ways, you and dad were kind of like already on a professional trajectory where you didn't. You know, you guys were never hippies, but your younger brothers and sisters sort of were, some of them, Dorothy Ann, certainly. Yeah. Dan was never a hippie, but he was, you know. Always uh, went on a separate path. Yeah, definitely. Uncle Dan's been on this podcast for people who might remember that episode. Um, And that's my mother's younger brother, one of them. But... um, I don't know. Do you you ever think about that? I mean, at the time, did you ever think like, geez, these kids are in a world that didn't exist when I was a kid. And somehow, like, I don't know how to how to judge their behavior or or give them advice because the world's changed so much. Well, we were very involved in civil rights. uh, And your father was offered a job. I can't think now somewhere in the deep south, uh, you know, heading up a civil rights uh, office or complex or something. And we we chose then not to take it because of, of raising children in that environment. It was pretty scary. Yeah. So uh, we opted to stay in uh, Altoona, Pennsylvania, where your father was very active in the a Democratic Party as well as the civil rights movement. He wrote, he wrote under his grandfather's name, uh, many, many, many articles. And really, for a while, uh, no one in town knew who this person was who were writing. I mean, our close friends like Andy and Kathy and Dick Rotroff, they knew. 
that Frank was writing these, but nobody else in the the organizations or or Penn State certainly didn't know that Frank was writing. So the, he was writing for a newspaper. Or where were they appearing? Well, they were appearing in the Democratic newspaper, I guess that, um, and he he was very involved with that. And uh, he and he and Andy and Dick Rotroff really took over the Democratic Party in Blair County, changed it from uh, staunch Republican to Democrat. The county, really. yeah. Huh. Interesting. And can you tell the story about why you named me Christopher? Oh, well. And is it true that dad wanted to name me F. Scott? <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> no, I th- I heard that. St- I thought he told me that story that he wanted to name me F. Scott. And you were like, come on, not a chance. Well, I knew that if you were a boy, you were not going to be named Frank Joseph Ryan the uh-huh. Third. Um, but Frank's grandfather's name was Christian. Christian Whitmer Schaub. He was a, a Pennsylvania Dutch German. But Frank's favorite professor in college was Father Christopher Fullman, who was a big influence in his life and, and our life and then your life. And so we named you Christopher. Patrick just seemed to go with it um, So you've been Christopher Patrick Ryan. Um, Three first names. Yeah. Well, Ryan was not a first name in those days. Yeah, that's true. But uh, Frank's grandfather was pleased knowing what your name was. And I don't know that we ever really clarified it for him that it was Christopher and not Christian, but um, the family was happy. I remember a story um, that uh, dad was having um, a crisis of faith at the, at uh, what was the name of the college? St. Vincent's, right? St. Vincent. Yeah. And he, you know, he, he had a real intellectual awakening there and being out of the house, you know, his parents' house and, uh, he's a very smart guy, and I guess when he started reading and thinking independently, he started to question a lot of the Catholic dogma that he'd been raised with, and which he really believed. And he wanted to be a priest up until relatively late in his teens, right? Yeah, till he met and me. I re- <laughs> really? Are you the what led him away from the Lord? Well, I think he had already pretty much decided when he started college that he wasn't going to be a priest. But um, right, <laughs> you I sealed might have the deal. Sealed the deal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, anyway, the story I remember is that he went to Father Christopher and said to him, "You know, look, I'm having real questions about this. These things don't make sense." 
I don't know if I believe this anymore. And Father Christopher said, uh, you know, actually, I haven't told anyone this, but I am going through the same kinds of thinking and the same crisis, and I'm probably going to leave the priesthood. And that that was very comforting for dad and very sort of, uh, uh, you know, a momentous conversation. Do you remember that story? Is that true or am I making that up? Oh, no, that's very true. And Father Chris did eventually leave the priesthood and uh, married uh, a, a student from Seton Hill. She had she was graduated by that time, but Sally, who you know, and we all love dearly. Um, but yes, I remember that. And, and we were friends with Father Chris for many, many years. And then he even came to State College and visited us in the trailer park. I remember, mm. I remember mm. cooking a, a, a chuck steak we had marinated and your dad had built a little grill out in our yard and uh, we cooked this, this, this cheap cut of meat, which was all we could afford. And Father Chris remarked that it was the best steak he had ever had. It just, how did we prepare it? And how did we <laughs> to say, oh, geez, it's not a fillet. It's not even a good piece of of steak, but yeah, I, I remember, like, I don't remember knowing him as a kid at all, but I remember I was visiting you guys as an adult. This is after college, I guess, yeah. in my 20s or 30s or something. And I remember you were going to go visit him and you invited me to go. And I kind of freaked out. I remember not wanting to meet him and being really like, nope, not going to do that, not interested, and feeling pressured. And I, I still don't understand why I reacted that way. But I remember feeling like just for some reason I really did not want to meet that guy. And then I changed my mind and we went and he was the coolest, sweetest dude ever. He was just... And what I remember thinking about him is that he sort of exemplified all the wonderful qualities of Christianity. Like he was a real Christian, not the dogmatic, mm -hmm. you know, money, fancy hats and outfits and the Pope Mobile and the Vatican and all that crap, but the help poor people, like the teachings of Jesus, you know, that kind of Christian very politically aware, very like anti-nuclear, environmentally aware, sweet, kind, you know, volunteering at the soup kitchen, like that kind of guy. Really nice guy. Yeah, I remember uh, we told you we were going to go and and we wanted you to come and, and meet Chris and Sally. And, and uh, you said, no, 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 no. And so we said, okay, you know, we're we're going and we'll see you when we get back. And the next morning as we were getting ready to go, you appeared and said, I think I'm going to go with you. And so I don't think we were pressuring you. At first I thought, well, this would be a great opportunity. And then when you 
had that attitude toward it. We just sort of dropped it. You know, you do what you want. We're we're going. Well, but that was kind of your attitude toward parenting in general. I don't remember you guys ever really pressuring me or threatening not to pay for college if I didn't do this or study that or I you know I you guys were very savvy parents I think very uh kind and respectful and like gave Beth and I plenty of space to do our own thing which was must have been hard sometimes It is the hardest thing to to try to instill independence in your children. And then when they show a sign of independence, you want to just pull them back in and say, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Not that kind of independence. <laughs> <laughs> Not that much. Yeah. But, um, and I, I don't remember reading any books or taking any classes um, on, on parenting I would say I probably learned a lot from my parents, uh, although they were much calmer than I was, but I think it's because they were older. Mm -hmm. Um, And I knew I didn't want to do things like Frank's parents, and Frank knew, too. Uh, I remember one time getting really mad at him for something, and I said... You're acting like your father. And he got so upset and and just sort of begged me to never, never, never compare him to his father. And I really think Frank died with a lot of feelings about his father that he he didn't, uh, he never could get rid of. I know he and Tom talked about it and Tom has said that he he just doesn't think about it at all. But Frank Frank did. I think he was uh, always afraid that he was going to be like his father, but he really wasn't. I mean, his, his father was not a nice person. And he came from a really rugged background. Frank's, I give her credit. Frank's mom for raising two gentlemen sons and and the way they treated women. His mother was a really good person, but then she got really burnt out from taking care of Frank's dad and all the abuse she took from him. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the feelings you're referring to are anger and I mean, it's it's weird. Dad's stories about his father were always so full of emotion and, and complicated emotion. You know, like when his father took him to the bar where he hung out when dad was, you know, 15 or 16 or something. And like that, that was how they were going to bond. And his father didn't understand that that was the furthest thing. Yeah. From dad's, you know, yeah. he didn't want to be that kind of guy hanging out at the bar with a bunch of losers. But, yeah, it's it's interesting. I always felt that dad 
sort of defined himself against his father in the sense that I'm not going to be anything like that guy, which I think a lot of kids do, but, you know, just naturally sort of like, you know, I'm, you know, going on my own path, but not like renouncing their, their parents the way he did. Well, on the other hand, your grandfather was an accomplished piano player. Yeah. Uh, He was in a band for a while. They toured all over the East Coast. He was uh, on cruise ships uh, with the entertainment. And he always wanted to teach Frank how to play the piano. Frank had a gorgeous singing voice. And uh, Frank resisted because he didn't, he just didn't want to. And uh, he... Frank was in some kind of a, a show at school, and the aco- piano accompanist couldn't stay with Frank or play in the same key, and it just really messed everything up. And Frank thought, geez, if I played for myself, I would at least go in the right direction, you know. So he said to his father, All right. I want to learn how to play the piano. So his father taught him, and uh, that's how Frank learned to play. And mm. uh, But his father was, I, I don't think his father was a singer. I, I can't say I ever heard him sing. But um, he was a, a, quite a good piano player. Yeah. So did you, we were talking about dad's crisis of faith. How, what's your spiritual trajectory? Did you have a point where you said, I don't believe this anymore? Or did you just, you still believe it and you stopped going to church? Or where are you in, in terms of your sense of that um, stuff? I didn't have any uh, great moment uh, when I guess when Beth was a baby, maybe about two, um, I had pneumonia and I had to stay in bed for like a couple of weeks and we had a babysitter come in, take care of you and Beth. And your dad would dress you up on Sundays and you'd go off to church and, uh, then one Sunday when I was getting better, we were getting ready to go to church, and it was pouring rain. And I thought, I really should not be going out in the rain after being sick for so long. So we decided to just stay home, and I fixed breakfast, and it was just a nice, calm Sunday morning, and none of this, you know, put your shoes on and get your hat and, you know, and then trying to find a parking place and sitting down in church. And I thought, you know, this is really nice. (laughs) Just not. So I guess we did continue going for a couple of weeks. And um, I, I didn't care for the priest at the church where we went we didn't know him personally, but um, 
Beth was sitting on your dad's lap and she was just sort of cooing, not crying, not yelling out loud, not talking, you know. And the priest turned around on the altar and he said, will you please remove that crying child from church? So we did, and we never went back. And uh, I mean, that, I really felt confined with the strict upbringing that I had and that everything sort of revolved around the church. And when you'd come home from church, either my father or Frank's parents, wherever we were, would say, now what was the... Uh, uh, what was it called? The, the liturgy? The speech, you know, the talk. Oh, the sermon. The sermon. What was the sermon about? And oh, don't you like Father so and so? And da da da. And I thought, I don't know. And then it got, we were at your parents' house one summer. The church was air conditioned, but the house wasn't or anything. And we'd go just for the air conditioning for. <laughs> an hour in the air conditioning. And then we just started just going for a ride and not even going. <laughs> going. Mm -hmm. And then your dad's father would say, well, what was the sermon? And we did, who did the mass? And da-da-da. Just. To make you know, something up? When my mother was buried, um, there had there had been a, People, women always used to wear elaborate hats to church, and you know that um, women had to wear hats, but men didn't wear hats in church. And then it got to be that you had these little uh, lace, uh, little mantillas or little round lace that if you wore them, that was considered a hat. Hmm. So at, at my mother's funeral, and none of us had been to church for quite a while. We all whip out our little lace hats, little <laughs> from our purses, and we look around and we're the only ones, Joan and Dorothy Ann and me, and maybe Aunt Janie, were the only ones who had them on that the rules had changed and now you didn't even have to wear a hat. <laughs> but we said, we did it out of respect for our mother. <laughs> All right. You didn't want to give away. You hadn't been to church in 10 years. So that was the end of carrying the the little lace hat around. <laughs> so did you and Dad uh, talk about that? I, because, uh, I mean, you you sound so casual about it, but if you're raised in that world, if you leave the church, you go to hell, right? I mean, this is all... You know, I was baptized, you know, Beth was baptized and like, how did you deal with that? Was it, did you just stop taking it seriously or was it a kind of a heart wrenching decision? Were you worried that you would go to hell if you didn't raise your children in the church and wear your silly hat and all that? <laughs> no, after our parents died, it was much easier to stop pretending that we were going to church. And I used to think, you know, we're adults, but, you know, you just really didn't want to make a fuss with them. And um, I don't think 
I think your father might have had more of an epiphany than I did. I just found it so much easier on Sunday mornings not to get everybody dressed and ready and out. And and then when that priest said about the crying baby, I, we just all got up and walked out and never went back. Yeah. And we, we established that your parents took Catholicism very seriously, but they were also, your father was a scientist, mm-hmm. right? Um, and your mother was very open-minded, very intellectual. She read the New Yorker every week. I remember stacks of New Yorkers piled up and um, she was Sort of like we thinker. have now. Exactly. <laughs> we're carrying on the tradition. Um, but you know, I've always found that confusing, and it, it would have been interesting to have known her, of course, for many reasons. But one of them is that it's always confused me how intelligent, critical thinking people are true believers, how they square that. Well, your father and my mother had many, many, many conversations uh, about the Catholic Church, and I remember one of them, there was a, a theory or a part of the teachings that if uh, a woman was having a baby and there was a choice between saving the mother and the baby, they would save the baby and let the mother die if that was... And Frank said that would not happen to his wife if it was a choice uh, that he would save his wife. And uh, I guess according to the church teachings, it was the baby who was to be saved. And they argued and argued and argued about that. And luckily we never had a choice uh, to make about that, but... uh, I certainly knew where Frank stood on it. and uh, It must have been comforting for you, <laughs> if not for me, I must say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Glad I wasn't there for that conversation. <laughs> but then they, they, they didn't argue like Frank's parents argued. They discussed. Right. And because my mother was very, very bright, and uh, my father, too, they were both bright. But, but my mother and Frank had many, many discussions about religion. So she was open to to examining her beliefs intellectually. Yeah, yeah. And I just never got in on those conversations because um, I'm not an, a debating kind of person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just want everybody to be happy and and not arguing and <laughs> Yeah, I can remember you know you and I clashing uh when I was a monstrous teenager and I was sort of thinking like, you know, aware of how the Indians had been decimated and the environment was being destroyed and you know, how unfair capitalism is and world poverty and wars. And I was just sort of overwhelmed with some of the darkness of the world that I was becoming aware of. And I remember you saying, why can't you be pleasant? 
<laughs> I remember <laughs> thinking we're just like in two different worlds right now. And I, I understand, you know, your perspective. I, now I do that, you know, you're, this is, this is our home. This is our safe space. You can't bring that stuff in here. Um, whereas from my perspective, it was just like, uh, I can't be pleasant when I'm aware of, you know, so much injustice. Um, and speaking of that, you know, uh, the Indian thing, like I, when I think of my development as a adult human, the first thing I can remember being intellectually, um, just totally absorbed by was, uh, Native American cultures and reading all those books and, um, I don't know if I've told this story on the podcast or not, but uh, coming home from school and putting on a loincloth and, uh, you know, <laughs> trying to create as much of an Indian life as I could in suburban Pennsylvania. But, uh, I mean, did you ever want, worry that I was crazy? <laughs> not crazy. <laughs> you can be honest. <laughs> no. No, that was not normal kid behavior. Right. I mean, I was not a normal 11, 12, 13 year old. You were very uh, questioning and creative. And and I think it started with some kind of a school project. Uh, do you remember making a, a map of the United States and and having color coded yarn to every uh Indian reservation and what kind, what Indians lived there, you know, whether they were the Onondagas or the Shenandoahs or yeah. the, the Sioux or the Cherokees. In fact, when we moved out here to California, I finally did have to toss that uh, project because... He <laughs> <laughs> still had it. Well, you know, when... When we moved with movers and packers and the companies paying for it, we just took everything. But when right. we were moving to a much smaller place and across the country and having to pay for it, I did get rid of a lot of stuff. And I'm sorry, but that had to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, so I remember... Sorry, go ahead. I, I interrupted you. Well, I think that, that might have started your interest with the Indians and, and why they were in these reservations all across the country. And, you know, uh, then you did research. And, and I don't know whether you remember coming with the loincloth into a a bridge group that I had at the house. And we were all in the living room playing bridge. And you came through with your towel and your belt on. <laughs> I do remember that. I was just, I was actually going to ask you about that because I remember I was so accustomed to coming home from school, taking off my clothes, putting on the loincloth. By the way, the loincloth was made of a bath towel. And yes. I remember there was there were purple ones and kind of pink ones. <laughs> and then they weren't even brown, so it wasn't like deer skin or anything. And I was totally naked except for this bath towel and I put a belt around it so you could see like the sides of my ass. And I would just sit up in my room and read and study and do whatever I was doing. That was how I was. And then you were having this bridge party downstairs and I went 
to go get something to eat from the kitchen or whatever. And I walk through and I remember, you know, there's all this conversation. I don't know how, if there were four tables of four people playing, so 16 people or something like that. And I just remember the room going silent as I walk <laughs> through and then having like a vague thought like, oh, wait a minute, this must look weird to them. <laughs> like I didn't really care, but I was vaguely aware of how that must have gone across. So uh -huh. how did like, And how old was I then? I wasn't really little. I was 13 or something at that point. Well, maybe 10 or 11. No, a little younger. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. But then you did graduate into the uh, sheet pants that I made for you for your karate class. Right. Right. <laughs> I think Mike yeah. Lang is still wearing them. Yeah. Um, and I took that really seriously, too, the, the Kung Fu classes. That was another thing. So there's the Native American thing. There's the sort of Eastern, you know, whatever, Chinese or the martial arts culture. Um, did you ever feel like... Like, what? why is this kid fascinated with places other than here? Because uh, I wasn't, no. like, playing football or basketball or baseball. I wasn't into the normal things that were other kids were into. Well, you did play Little League one summer, and then you played, like, Pop Warner football which I didn't want you to play, but because your father was a football player and you, I think you went the one summer and then you said, do I have to do this again? And I said, nope, absolutely not. But I think maybe when I first started, uh, when we had the foreign exchange student, do you remember Tomoko? Tomoko Matsuyuki. You were about, yes. From Osaka. And I think she was 18 and you were maybe 14. And I think you fell in love with Tomoko. And, uh, you know, she was Asian. And, um, yeah, I, I, 18. I, rem <laughs> I don't, she was 18. I don't remember being concerned that you were uh, fascinated by Asian culture or uh, Indian culture, you know, but oh, I just thought it was, it was good that you took such a, a solid interest in, in uh, researching this, especially in Beaver Falls, because I don't think you were challenged in school at all very yeah. much. Yeah. So. Have you ever heard the expression that we live our parents' unlived lives? Mm. Not except maybe, it, you know, actors or dancers or entertainers. Mm, right. They kind of get pulled into it. Yeah. I Do you ever, did you ever look at, your kids and say, oh, they're doing things that I would have liked to have done if thing, if the situation were different or they're, you know, Beth and I were talking yesterday about how um, 
you know, she wanted to have kids. And, and I think she would have been a really good mother. But as it turns out, it's great that she can put all that energy into helping lots of kids and sort of spreading that energy out rather than focusing it all on one or two people. Um, and I never wanted to have kids. And I kind of feel like that is in some ways a reflection. Like I think dad really wanted to have kids because he wanted to be the kind of father that he didn't have. Mm -hmm. Like he wanted to be, you know, a father who wasn't abusive and who was loving and kind and all that, which he was. And I kind of feel like I was liberated from any desire or need to have kids because you and dad did such a good job that I don't have anything to prove. Hmm. Does that make sense to you? Um, yeah, I just know that the kind of life you wanted to live, uh, traveling and coming and going and, and not having a nine to five office job, um, that kids would tie you down. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I never, I never felt that you were, that you didn't have to prove anything to us. I, I personally, I would love to have grandchildren. And when I see Finn and David and Charlie and and them with Dorothy Ann and I think I could have been I could have been a good grandma but they're they're so generous with their lives and their children that I really feel a big part of their uh life uh and Mike Lang's kids call me grandma Julie I I just think that is the sweetest thing uh, Jim and Kim Baker's kids call me Grandma Julie, you know, and we've we've been a part of their lives, um, all of them, since the moment they were born. Uh, I used to take care of Colby, you know, and now he's off in the Navy and he's an underwater welder. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's definitely true that you know, biology is not really important in those relationships. And of course, that's something that I've been writing about in the two books that I've published are very much about how children were raised by a community of adults, mm -hmm. you know, in our past. And, and the biological mother, father is not in those in our in our past. That wasn't really a big deal. Um, because all the adults love the kids and took care of them. And if a you know baby starts crying, whatever adult's closest to the baby is the one who picks him up. You know, it's not, hey, your baby's crying over here. Come get your baby. It's, mm. um, you know, so in that context, uh, it makes a lot of sense. And, and it's another thing, Beth, and I talked about how you and dad were so welcoming of people and whether or not they're related to us by blood was a non-issue. Uh, what race they were is a non-issue. And, you know, Beth and I have both been married to non-white people and I've had lots of non-white girlfriends and it was never, um, 
you know, race, class, none of those things ever really seemed to matter to you guys, which was a really nice uh, example to set for us. No, they, I, I never once thought of, of race. I, I remember I had a student in the MBA program who was a, a very bright African-American guy, but he had a chip on his shoulder. And so one time I had told him about a class he should register for because it might not come up again when he needed it. And uh, I don't remember all the details, but he said to me, you're just saying that because you're prejudiced against blacks. And I said, sit down. (laughs) Let me tell you, (laughs) my son is married to an Indian woman. Now, that was before Jonathan came in the picture. And I went through, you know, the whole... The All whole the black life. girls I'd been with? The, <laughs> now, here, here's my, my son. My son loves black women. <laughs> he loves exotic, exotic women. But I, I just thought, you know, how this, this kid, who really didn't know me at all, just because I was telling him something he didn't want to hear, decided he would pull the race card on me. And I thought, and that's the only, only time it's ever, anything like that has ever happened. But um, I just remember him and I said, just sit down. I have a few things to tell you about me, (laughs) my family. (laughs) So on the subject of, uh, you know, how my life is different from your life and the world that I grew up in is different from the world you grew up in and all that. And having children, I think you're certainly right that the main reason I didn't have kids is that having kids would have made the kind of life I wanted to live impossible, right? Just financially and in terms of stability and all that stuff. But, um, another reason to be honest is that I know what kind of kid I was and it gets back to what you said before about you want your kids to be independent, but then when they start to do it, it's like, oh, my God, you know, not like that. And uh, I think if I had a kid that did half the things that I did, I'd lose my mind. I'd, I'd have, you know, high blood pressure. And how did you, you know, like when when I was in college and decided I was going to hitchhike to Alaska for the summer, like. Did you lie in bed awake wondering what highway I was standing next to and worry I was going to get picked up by a serial murderer? Or or did you just kind of, were you able to let go of it? You know, I worried more after I listened to your podcasts about uh, <laughs> spending the weekend in jail. and uh, But then you're just saying about this murderer who who just sort of took you under his wing and comforted you <laughs> that nothing was going to happen to you in jail. I think I worried more then retroactively. <laughs> um, I think your dad and I always stuck together on on decisions. And uh, I remember Beth saying one time, you and dad are always on one side and I'm on the other. And I said, well, yeah. Because we're together, you know, we have to be together in this. And I I remember my parents always 
being together um, and Frank's parents not being together. And I thought it's much better for the kids if you're together and you've got some rules. So, uh, no, once you were off in college, I remember one time you were in, in Florida and you went out and took my car and you didn't come back until later than I thought you would be. And when you came in, you know, you said, do you worry about me every day at college? And I said, no, because in college you don't have my car. <laughs> I'm more worried about my car. Well, than... thanks a lot, Mom. <laughs> but I didn't think of you every day in college. You know, are you yeah. getting enough to eat? Are you studying? You know, it was out of my hands then. And, and I guess we just hoped that you would remember what you had learned at home and that you were behaving but you always weren't. <laughs> <laughs> Not always. So during those years when I was in college, I was very close friends with Eric Patterson, who was the head of the English department at the school and who was pretty flamboyantly gay. And uh, I've always wondered if you and dad thought that maybe I was gay. Yes. Did you? You thought... <laughs> Well, I didn't think that you seemed to be gay, but I didn't know whether Eric might entice you with uh, the <laughs> gay way of life. <laughs> yeah, well, I've had some, you know, Stanley's gay and you know, I've had lots of gay friends over the years. And a lot of them have said that I'm gay in everything except uh, sexual orientation. So I, I could see why you would have thought that. Because, uh, yeah, there are a lot of things about um, gay men that I admire. You know, the, the sense of humor and the freedom and the uh, courage to be who you are, no matter what it costs you. Um, you know, there, there are things that gay men go through that I find really inspiring and admirable. And so I do find myself drawn to gay men a lot more than, because a lot of straight men are just boring because they're all hung up and they've, they haven't gone through that, you know, walk through the fire of saying, I need to be who I am. And I don't care if it means God doesn't love me or my parents reject me or my friends, you know, they haven't gone through that. Um, but yeah, at the time, I, I, I asked Beth about this also. Uh, at the time, I do remember thinking, yeah, if I were them, I'd probably wonder. Although I, I had girlfriends at the time, so you must have just thought I was bisexual or something. Mm, I, I, I didn't think about it all the time. I, I, I remember Maggie saying one time about Charles, uh, because he loved to go shopping with Dorothy Ann and hang this out with her. This is my cousin and, and her husband. And she said, Charles is just gay enough. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so maybe maybe unconsciously I thought that maybe you were just gay enough. And Well, if I had been gay, would that have been difficult for you guys? No. 
No, I cannot understand how people can disown a child for for anything. But, um, you know, to be gay, no. And now it's so open. I mean, people just talk about yeah. it uh, openly. Uh, you know, in those days, it wasn't open. And, uh, you know, did you I'm have sure gay? Did you and did you and Dad have gay friends when you were younger? Well, your father had a a guy who worked for him, Jim, and uh, he dated this girl all through college, and then. They were married, and we were invited to their wedding because the the bride was the daughter of of another one of your father's colleagues at work. So we went to the wedding, and they were the nicest couple, and we had so much fun. And then afterwards, we actually double dated with this young couple to art museum openings and things in town, you know. And they were interested in the symphony and. And uh, and then one day Jim came into Frank's office and said he wanted to tell him something that he and Tracy, I think her name, that uh, they were getting a a divorce, which surprised us because they just seemed like the perfect couple. And then he told your father that day that he was he was gay, and. Uh, it, it it was a shock, and and he has since had a a sex change operation, and he's a guy about six seven, which uh, I think would make a very uh, a, a woman who would certainly stand out. Yeah. But um, you know, he he said to your father, if this makes any difference to you. And I know that you work with Tracy's father and, and all. If this will make a difference to you, you know, I will resign. And Frank said, I, I don't see any difference at all. And and, and we, we spent some time uh, socially with him along the way, too. And then, so I, I think that it's probably the only... There were a lot of gay couples in Harrisburg because mm. it was a it was the state capital to begin with, and it's uh, I know a lot of uh, people who supported the symphony and came to all the events that you know there'd be two guys and we knew they lived together and we knew they were gay, but there wasn't there didn't seem to be any stigma in Harrisburg, and that was many years ago. Yeah, that's good, 30 years ago. And they'd entertain, um, and they'd always have gorgeous houses, and we'd always say, yeah, they're not sending kids to college. You know, they can afford to, <laughs> they can afford to have this and, and drive a... Let's see. Yeah, so... That's that's the, the gay lifestyle, no kids. <laughs> but now all these gay guys are having kids. Anderson yeah, I don't Cooper know. And, uh, yeah, well, he can afford it. He's he's going to do okay financially, I think. But you know, this gets to to one of the sort of enigmas of of you and Dad that I've often thought about, which is, you know, if you look at your life from outside, just not knowing you, just sort of the story. Okay, this couple meets when 
she's 16 and he's 18, uh, you know, high school or 17, um, get married right away, have kids right away. You were what, 21 when I was born, 22, something like 20, that? 22. 22. Dad was 23, 24. Um, yeah, you were right into the family and the work and the houses and suburbia and swimming pool and like the whole, it was seen from outside. It, it kind of looks like a very conventional, um, very happy, not a criticism at all, but a very conventional kind of American middle class life. And both of you Catholic, raised Catholic, Catholic parents, Catholic schools right through college and yet here you are like totally relaxed about homosexuality. Um, maybe my kid's gay. Maybe he's not. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Uh, just this very, and we threw a lot of stuff at you. I was growing marijuana in my bedroom in high school. And I remember, you know, you didn't, you didn't tell me not to grow marijuana in the closet. You just asked me to move it out in the yard because people were looking at the house that you were trying to sell the house and in upstate New York and Casanova, you were just so tolerant and accepting of things that were so far outside of your own personal experience, I guess is my point. And I don't understand where that comes from. Do I have one minute to answer that? <laughs> <laughs> as long as you want. What? In in ten words, <laughs> I don't know, Chris. We just took one day at a time. Honestly, <laughs> nobody trained us. We didn't go to class to learn anything. Um, I remember having a friend who um, said she used to just marvel at at uh, my children, but when you went off to Alaska, she said. I am going to stop holding him up as an example to my kids because I don't want them to do that. And I thought, okay, you know, so he's going to Alaska. You know, he's not that we didn't worry about you, but, um, and, and after hearing the podcasts, uh, I think I should have worried more maybe, but <laughs> I didn't. Well, did you ever think that I was living, you know, a life that dad, if, I mean, you know, I think dad was very happy with the life that he lived. He was super in love with you, you know, from the beginning to the end. Uh, and I think he was happy raising kids. And I think he was disappointed by some of the things that happened in, in work, you know, but see, I, I guess the thing, when I think about dad, I think he was a guy who was a rebel but he was a rebel within organizations. Mm -hmm. So he was smart enough that he could be a vice president of a big insurance company, but still be a rebel and still say the wrong thing at the meeting and still tell the boss when he was full of shit. And he was always like on that edge, you know, between getting fired and being indispensable because he worked so hard and was so smart. And sometimes I think he, personality-wise, he wasn't really a company man. He was someone who should have just been doing his own thing. And if he had been born maybe, you know, 10 or 20 years later, he would have been. But in those days, the way you made a living was to work for the companies. Um, and that 
I mean, I always felt like dad got a lot of vicarious pleasure when I went off to Alaska or I did some crazy adventurous thing. And and never, I never felt like he felt like, oh, you lucky bastard, you know, you get to do what I wanted to do. It was never like that. It was just like, yeah, good. You go get it. Have fun, you know, live your life. Yeah, there was a time he was offered a position in uh, Australia. And uh, I, I think he probably would have liked to have taken it. But, you know, you and Beth were in some grades in school where it would have been tough. Uh, I mean, even the move to Connecticut was really a big, a big deal to take you from a small town to your dad working in Manhattan. And, uh, you know, he said, why don't we get an apartment or something right in Manhattan? I said, I don't think we can take two country living kids to live in a big city. Maybe it would have been a really good thing for you. But at the time, it just seemed like too much of a change. Although I think that was meant Sorry, that, I was just going to say that was Manhattan in the 70s. That was pretty dicey then. It was in the 70s, yeah. Yeah. Well, it 70, wasn't like Manhattan now. No. But uh, I, I don't even know that I could live in a city. The, this house I'm living in now is the first house I've ever had with a sidewalk. Mm. You know, I've always lived in the country or in the mountains or... Yeah. You know, um I this is the most city I've ever lived in in my entire life. But I think Connecticut was very good for you. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So what you know, the same kind of a theme of the the sort of your comfort with worlds that you never actually lived in yourself is is just, I guess, the theme that's emerging here that I really admire in you and Dad. Um, when I published Sex at Dawn, what was that like? Here you are, like two of maybe the most monogamous couple in America, and uh, some people would have, if their kid published a book like that, they would have taken it as some sort of a personal uh criticism or whatever i mean there are ways you could have been offended by that for sure and i i never felt that either one of you took it that way dad you know both of you read drafts and gave me comments and dad was very much an editor of that book um really involved with it and and you were both uh very supportive but sometimes i think about that here you are you've had this very monogamous life and uh, long marriage. How did you ever feel uncomfortable about that? No, not really. Um, I just remember, <coughs> excuse me, being over at Jones one day and Declan, who was maybe 10, walked into the room and saw the book that you had just brought them on the, the table. And he looked at it and then he said, Oh, 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 I don't think I should be looking at that. <laughs> and I thought... Because well, it has sex on the cover? Yeah. You know, he was 10 or something. No, I never... I never did not tell my friends about it. I did not offer to give them one if they 
uh, took an interest in uh, my friend Shirley, who was raised uh, in a Mennonite family, uh, was the first one who I gave the book to, and she read it. And then she yeah. passed it on to another friend in Harrisburg. And uh, when I was there last October, I had lunch with about 10 or 11 symphony friends. And I said that your new book had just recently come out, but I didn't. I had a choice of carrying seven or eight boxes of C's candy or seven or eight books with me on the plane. So I said, if anybody wants a book, I'll mail it to you. But I brought the C's candy with me. <laughs> and uh, two two women asked me for a book. And uh, I mailed them to them. And um, I haven't gotten their book reports yet, but I'm going right. to have to remind them. But um, Did you ever, did it make your friends uncomfortable? Did you ever feel that there was a... Because I, I mean, I look. I, I have my friends. I've had friends who've been uncomfortable. You know, I go to a cocktail party sometime, and someone will say, "Oh, Chris, you know, wrote this book, Sex of Dawn," and and I can just see people like run away sometimes. Oh yeah. So I can imagine you would have uh, experienced something similar, perhaps. I just remember Shirley saying she didn't uh, really agree with everything in the book. And I said, oh, believe me, I don't either. So you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the right way to look at it. <laughs> I don't either, uh, for the record. <laughs> there, there are too many things in books to agree with all of them, you know? Yeah. Okay, Mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. <clears throat> Sex at Dawn. Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. <laughs> she didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, Civilized to Death design. They're all Civilized That's right. to Death. We have stickers and car decals. Right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're going to say. Headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest you want to shut it 
to the ground. 